Yeah, all right, folks, and this is uh, Talk Fury on WineCellarMedia.com. It is indeed a Wine Cellar Media Network now. I think it's three different programs coming through one channel. And we'll be on with uh, Dr. Springler. This one is indeed live on the Blog Talk Radio. Uh, hopefully, folks can um, call in at 347-857-3937 and join in on the conversation radio. And things that I wouldn't mind bringing up here, if, uh, if anyone has any uh, commentary on these, I definitely would myself if it just ends up being us for the hour. And uh, things that I'll be running through over the wine cellar throughout the week in general, not just today. And uh, things that I'm seeing here, um, Africa's looted artifacts being put up for sale during the global economic crisis. Uh, something uh, Phoenix Kalita uh, got made sure to get up on the website. And people are boycotting a company called Lush after the CEO gifted police care packages. And there's multiple images of that. And then images of uh, where people put um, police have crossed the line uh, tape that has that printed on it across a lush storefront window. Did not break the window. Just uh, kept it casual. Said we're just not going to uh, spend a buck here. And we also have uh, police are targeting protest medics. And um, a little bit from an article here, um, the protests can be dangerous places, especially demonstrations about police violence where officers use batons, shields, tear, ga tear gas, rubber bullets, and their fists on participants. That's why people with medical training, emergency medical technicians, nurses, doctors, and others usually come to provide aid, just like they do at any other large gatherings. In addition to assaults by police officers, protesters have to worry about violence from counter-protesters, not to mention injuries from uh, simply being in a large crowd in the healthcare emergencies like heat stroke. But as police across the United States have made plain, particularly now, as people uh, take to the streets to protest racism, police violence against black Americans after a Minneapolis officer uh, murdered George Floyd last week, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, the cops will take you out. And they do have um, imagery and short video clips of cops attacking and arresting medical professionals so that they can't help people they injure on the spot. Uh, we also have a video clip of uh, two women tearing down um, heart paper cut into hearts with Black Lives Matter written on them, and they're tearing them down while some young teenagers that put them up are actually crying in front of them because they're sadists. And um, there also is... Um, uh, there's a fact check uh, off uh, USA Today. Police did indeed destroy a medic area during protest in Asheville, North Carolina, literally stabbing water bottles and whatnot, just went out there and smashed it up. And in the image, we did not do this on purpose. This is not Photoshop. One of the riot cops is indeed holding their shield upside down. So the best and the brightest as it tends to go and dr springler i know you always have um the the wildest news that we could ever find yeah i mean things are moving fast right now really fast with uh, the u.s rebellion the uprising happening um 
you know, uh, one thing that really struck me a couple days ago on June 3rd, um, Beijing state newspaper uh, or media channel um, out of China um, called the United States a failed state. And that's that's very interesting. Um, that's a very politicized term that the United States has used against uh, many nations across the world for decades as a as a term to to politicize third world countries that are largely victims of U.S. imperialism. Um, we will label them as a failed as failed states in uh, in various ways and. So now we've got other world powers considering us a, a, a failed state. So that is something to unpack. Um, we can, uh, and let me know, by the way, William, this is my first time going live on this podcast. So um, so let me know if how callers come on, how that works, if we we'll get a little ping sound in my ear or something to know. Um, but... You know, I'm happy to talk about the failed state stuff. That's one of the more interesting things um, this week, amongst many, many interesting things. Um, did you want to keep reviewing, or do you want to dig into some of that stuff? Uh, the the failed state deal, right? Because um, yeah, that that's why I, I like to interact with you. Like you're you you've read more, you've thought more, and you discuss these things far more than I do. Like, I, I read a little bit, and I have my experiences, and then I yell about them. And um, yeah. I, I'm one of the people, um, like, I don't really, I don't call this thing a nation. It's not a country or a nation to me. It's just a, it's just a big job site. You know, even the person that's homeless holding up a cardboard that they wrote a message on with a piece of Sharpie trying to get some change, that's literally the labor that they're doing. Like, everybody is doing some sort of work just to exist. And I, I don't even consider it a nation. It's, it's a corporate state, if it's any sort of state. But, yeah, what, what do you think of this uh, failed state? Well, that's a great point, you know, um, about people just sort of existing here and surviving, but fewer and fewer people are feel like they are legitimate citizens of the state and that is one aspect of a failed state um you know if you uh run on over and ask a dr google and uh it's assistant uh wikipedia there's a whole bunch of different views on this uh, on this this subject on what is a failed state there's a lot of disagreement because it's such a politicized term but it's largely come around from the west and theorists in uh europe and north america in terms of, um, you know, one one basic unifying way you could look at it, though, is that a failed state is um, when a when a state or political body it it has a loss of legitimacy or effectiveness of itself. So it is either not effective in being able to regulate its laws, um, its financial laws, or whatever else. It is not able to or can't enforce its laws through its own military anymore from, from the state. Um, and that is very common, for instance, in many nations that the United States has destabilized, um, classically, like in the Latin American model of our imperialism, we will fund a military of, you know, in a, in a left-wing country and stage a coup. For instance, um, in Chile, in the 
1970s. That's a classic case. You know, that became a failed state. But after left-wing president um, Allende, who was elected, um, was ousted by a was ousted by the military in a military coup. So in that case, the legitimate state was unable to maintain its power and its control because there was the rogue military power came in and took over and oust you know um, ousted the government in Allende and then um, took over and had Pinochet as a dictator killed a lot of people and had this right-wing, super neoliberal fascist um, takeover from there. That was orchestrated by the United States, by the way. So that's important because these, um, you know, so another aspect of um, a failed state is that it is penetrable by a foreign state, um, that they are able to be manipulated um, by a foreign power. So typically that's the United States doing that to others. So. So in this case, you know, we are the the empire, the center of global power and violence on an international scale with how we economically control countries, um, politically control countries and militarily control countries together. Um, We're being the the center of that empire. It's curious that, you know, we've been we've been rivaling China now because of their growth in their economy for so long. And with the, the power that China has been able to exert, um, much peaceful, much more peaceful in many ways and a different model than how the United States goes about global power. They're often typically investing. They're doing a lot of investing across Russia, across Africa. Um, they're, you know, funding infrastructure in Mexico now. Um, so they are, they're taking a different approach than strong arm military intervention and um, bombing <laughs> like, the, like the United States does to, to wield power internationally. So they called us a failed state because of the uprisings happening, you know, and also called, you know, Trump a racist and stuff like that. And, you know, people could chalk that up to this being, you know, the rivalry between China and the U.S., but this is you know, the fact that the center of the empire is now considered the failed state, um, you know, it begs the question of what what makes it a failed state? Do we see it as a failed state, the people in in the United States? Are we at a point where protesters see it as a failed state? Um, Is it just one side of the aisle that sees it as a failed state? Does anybody? Because, you know, um, I would say... You know, it really depends. Like, are we able to enforce laws right now? The protesters defied all laws. There's rioting across the entire the entire United States um, and looting in a way that's unprecedented um, in some ways. So it's to me, it's a new level that I I mean, I'm all for it. I don't I don't um, compare looting to, you know, Wall Street looting on in any sense. So, you know. Uh, so is that an inability to enforce laws? Can that count as a, as a failed state, the amount of chaos we're seeing? Um, and people's people's refusal now to, to see, you know, criminal borders, like, like robbing, you know, robbing stores and, and other transgressions. If people don't see, if people don't see that, um, those rules are legitimate anymore. Is that, you know, and when corporate power is so tied to the state, does that count as an attack against the state when private property essentially is a state now?
So what do we, you know, what do we consider a loss of legitimacy and effectiveness of the United States? You know, we, if, if, is the government really in power if corporations control everything? You know, I would say that no one's, you know, tying the hands of our entire government that wants to actually help us. You know, we haven't seen any willingness from the majority of people in the political establishment here. There's, there's, you know, I can count, you know, on, on one hand, the people who are semi on the side of the people in our federal government. So what do we, is, is that a failed state that's been hijacked by, you know, corporate power and the non-state power? What do we, you know, it's, it's a, it's a matter of, being a politicized term, it's a matter of how we see it and how we frame this turning the tables on the United States now. Mm. And that's uh, Dr. Springler introducing the um, failed state uh, hey! conversation. <laughs> Some folks out there that did um, click on the uh, social media post um, links to this live program. If you are tuned in and you want to get involved, join in. It's uh, 347 857 3937. That is 347 857 3937. And you will be prompted by the voice with the British accent to press 1 if you would like to speak up. And then we'll get a visual notification and click you in. And we ju- we're just interested in knowing um, your name, where you are, and how you came across the program, as well as your commentary. I think um, uh, a failed state, right? like maybe a failed attempt at a state. I mean, if that's what they were really going for, right? Because I, I guess in the context of white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy always being a, a big part of it, I guess uh, for the so-called founders... Like um, creating a state is going to have those uh, built in hierarchies, right? These folks are just meant for breeding and raping. These folks are just for labor and raping. You know, these folks are just for setting aside and subjugating and maybe more labor and raping. And uh, but really, when they do that and then you tell me this is a state and it's there's freedom and liberty, it's like, well, you failed to even establish it from the beginning. I mean, maybe there's more folks that aren't seeing that conclusion, but I mean, it's like we um we didn't really bring up heavily on the program, but you posted about it in social media where it's like those pigs are out there. Every time you crack a young white kid's head, like you just made a radical. <laughs> like if you don't like anarchists, don't be a pig and crack a young white kid's head because you're opening the shit out of their eyes if they survive it. Dr. Yeah. 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 You know, and, um, a lot of people are going to be radicalized by this if they haven't felt safe violence before. So it's a, you, you know, and on the terms of, of the subject of a failed state, you know, a state is only as legitimate as its subjects are willing to make it 
legitimate and see it legitimate and feel themselves as part of something legitimate, right? It's one thing to protest a state and say, oh, I, you know, okay, I don't agree with what's happening. This is not right. This is my country. And I don't, it's not sharing my values right now. You know, this could be the mindset of some people that they, they think that something is wrong and they want to change it because that's not the kind of country they want to live in if their country is now doing this and they're becoming awake about it, right? It's another thing when you get, you know, hit upside the head or you see other people assaulted by the police and dragged off and you start to realize, wow, maybe I'm not, I am not, these people are not treating me as a member of this state anymore. They are treating me as an enemy. So they make, they force people, they radicalize people by treating them as the enemy. And that, that changes people. That's a, that's a whole different conversation internally and a worldview in terms of where do I belong and what is my country? Do I not consider myself a part of this country anymore? Um, because for a, a state to be legitimate, you know, in the United States and any colonial place, especially, um, there's always classes of people who do not have that aren't real citizens, right? And Malcolm X would talk about this. He would argue with all the, the civil rights folks who wanted integration back in the day about whether or not, like, do you, uh, do you see, he would ask, he would ask integrationists, do you see yourself as a citizen of this country? They've never treated you as a citizen of this country. So why are you asking for rights as a citizen? That's the argument, right, of somebody who feels and understands themselves as an outsider to the state, but is subject to that, the terror of that state. So there's always been people who have either, who have been outside of the rights of a state or exploited by the state. It's a matter of their consciousness about that, though, right? Um, I would say integration really complicated that because we still see people who ultimately don't have rights in practice, but they understand themselves because of integration as more a citizen of this state. But less and less people, regardless of race now, that see themselves outside the state, that is how it becomes illegitimate when its own people, more and more people, refuse to see it as legitimate and they and they transgress and they follow their own rules. And if um and if the idea of like a state or a nation, maybe that it seems a uh like a large macrocosm. You, you could see this in microcosms where as you're growing up, you start to see where f there's some older family members that are full of shit and lying and they just want to uphold a, a hierarchy in those microcosms. And, um, and teachers, you start to notice where they're kind of full of shit. And you're like, oh, damn, that teacher right there is fucking sexist as shit, right? Like you have that teacher who before they even made it a dress code was already like all right i don't like the way these gals are dressing in front of the boys and then like you're gonna get some girls that are gonna get radicalized right there in in that aspect like wait why the fuck can't i wear a tank top but fucking jimmy can you know I, it's summertime i'm hot too you know uh like why don't i have that same right so you can see those things in those microcosms coming up um You'll even start to see it if you're uh, reading the newspaper or, or getting some sort of journalism that isn't corporate and has a lot of ad rev running through it. You'll be like, wait, what the fuck did the governor do? That's bullshit. What did the mayor sign off on? Oh, fuck that. You know, and you start to see these things. It's like, wait, I really don't fucking matter here, do I? And I think it's and when you get lower down in income and basically what you're, you know, three bad weeks from being homeless 
for a lot of years in a row. Yeah, you can you can already see it as a failed state yourself without having to have um, someone from China or some philosopher tell you that. And um, I do see a person on the board at 773, but I do not see the notification. Maybe you're just um, listening by telephone, and that's all right as well. Uh, Dr. Sprinkler. I ripped the mic with the force of a black hole on the intergalactic plateau. The rhyming weapon spitting faster than bullet shadows. I smack clones. The force of my thoughts will crack bones. And when I rhyme, I give more lines to tap bones. Damage and beats. Burning tracks with flammable speech. The rapping intangible beast with animal teeth. Battling me is like going to hell asking for heat. Cause I'm rougher than leather and tougher than African feet. Walking these scandalous streets like an evangelist priest. Keeping it heated like Cool J. You say there's a caller trying to call in? Oh, yes. Okay, they put, they put up the notification. All right, and we'll click them in. And 773, your microphone is hot. Uh, your name, where you are, and how did you come across the program and your comment? Uh, your audio is not coming in at all. Super low decibels. Like, I can hear something, but it kind of sounds like a CB radio in 1989. <laughs> ah, shoot. It's not coming through. Hey, can you try to, um, at 773, try to hang it up and call it back, um... Yeah, see, so, uh, give give it another go because we we are not getting audio on this end. All right, I saw they they just blinked off the board. Maybe they'll uh, give it another shot there. All right, no problem. Let them try again then. Um, you know, and in terms of this failed state stuff, you know, that's the interesting thing with it being a politicized term, right? It's it's a term that people that those in power in a lot of ways, you know, is in a if you think about it with the Eurocentric um, theorists and commentators, political commentators that have used that term, it comes from the empire to, in order to politicize what's happening in other nations. So if it can be turned in the U- against the U.S. now, because there's, there's an othering um, with that term, looking at the other with that term, with power to be able to control the narrative of that, right, of, and the politics of what's happening. So other people turning that against the U.S. is a very interesting turn in power. And, you know, it means that we are being othered. The United States is being othered in a way that it hasn't um, since, especially since its rise to power since World War II as, as the major economic power. So that is very, it shows a vulnerability to have that view, that, that lens turned reverse on us. So, and you know, anyway, that's not the only, there's a lot of people talking about these issues right now. You know, you got Dr. Cornell West, all of his commentary on this has been great recently. He's been interviewed in a few areas on, or on a few places, BBC recently in the last week or so. Um, that I was listening to Democracy Now! as well, had a long interview, I think, with him. And, you know, he's been describing this as the imploding empire. This is the implosion. You know, it's it's eating itself. It's it's falling inward. So it, it's less and less legitimate to its own people. So that 
That is very interesting, and the, the many different ways that people come in on this at this angle. And, you know, we're going to see that people try to co-opt this from, you know, be it the Democratic Party or other kind of establishment powers here in the United States um, are going to try to turn this narrative into something that they can control. Of course, that's how it works. That's how any counter-revolution works. I'm not saying that what happened in the U.S. as an uprising is a revolution per se, because I haven't seen that kind of... Um, consistent uh, messaging or ideology or, or, or organization. There's very, there's been very little organization. There's been many, many, many different groups and organizations having their hands in this in different ways. Um, you know, whether the more liberal, very pacifist ones that are, that are doing the marches now, now after the riots, then, then they come in and do their, their versions. You've got them all mixed in together, you know, a week ago when a lot of the riots were happening. Um, You've got a lot of people who transgress the most who aren't part of any organization, you know, or you've got groups that are outside of the political organizing that are more of a, an economic organization, such as the gangs that are involved. So, I mean, you, you can't, um, I, I don't see revolution per se, but I see a delegitimizing of official power in the United States. And that is very important, um, so, you know, that's sort of where I'm at is, you know, who's going to come in and turn and uh, and uh, run the turn the wagons around and try to get everybody on the, uh, the bandwagon for, you know, the Democratic Party, which is classic about this. They're where movements, the graveyard where movements go to die. Typically, um, they're great at co-opting movements. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of waiting, you know, maybe you've got some some ideas or already sent some, seen some news about some people, William, um, maybe you're more on top of it than me today, but, um, in terms of who are, who, who are the leaders that are going to be cherry picked to speak for this entire rebellion in order to neutralize it? Because that's the game. That's, you know, that's how it works. Um, um, I, th I think that it will be, it will have to be a new name because too many names are tainted. But uh, before I go any further there, let's give 773 another shot here. And your microphone is hot again. Can you hear me now? Oh, shoot. We can't. Like, I can hear you, but I also watched the decibels recording, and it is not picking your audio up. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, that's pretty bugged out. Yeah, it's not coming in. Yep, sorry about that. Shoot. We had one well, whole... in the meantime... Yeah. <laughs> if, um... I can... I can keep things rolling if you still... If you want to keep trying with the, the caller. Oh, oh, hell oh hell yeah. Yep, keep... T it, it is your program. This is Talk okay. Fury yeah, with the Doctor. Yeah, if they're able to cut in. If they're able to cut in, they can cut right into the conversation here. Um, okay. But, um... Yeah, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, is it is are they gonna is Sean King gonna be the the big name on the on MSNBC and CNN again, or like you said, maybe it's gonna be new people that they're you know they're gonna pick out. Um, maybe D Ray with the with the vest. He's already paid by some universities um, to do what he does. I know there was a big split in the old Black Lives Matter crew from around 2015. Um, so maybe we'll be new people. Um, you know, Oprah is already doing a, uh, 
she's doing something on a systemic racism, an educational program on systemic racism, you know, which is ironic considering before it was all, you know, how to rags to riches, um, according to her and, um, you know, preaching down at the poor for being poor. Um, so, you know, I expect people to kind of to come out and try to control the narrative to the expense of the people who did the most, the grassroots, largely young black people across this country who finally threw down and raised the level on, um, on this and put power against power. You know what? They, they won't, they won't actually be able to get an activist. They can't. We're, we're too far in. Like, notice how you were able to just rattle off names of bullshitters. And then, like, you know, like, to keep the conversation going, I try to think of a, a response to keep it flowing for the program. And I'm like, oh, well, they could pick Stacey Abrams. It's like, nobody takes Stacey Abrams serious. Like, you can't can't pick her. Uh, Simone Sanders, you can't. That That's not going to work. I don't think you can't really use any of the... Um, the identity crowd um to mislead black people much anymore like the only black people that you could mislead are those that you're already misleading i i don't think they're going to be able to get anyone new to to roll with them and their bullshit ideas and partisan and pro-corporate propaganda yes yeah, i mean they're not going to be able to get you they're not going to be able to get me they're not going to be able to get phoenix Kaliter. Yeah, who who the hell can they actually snatch? And if they do get someone new, that person's going to be instantly mistrusted by the left because we're going to say, well, why would corporate media put you on the camera? We're already suspicious, right? Like how when they had those um, debate questions, you come to find out that the people asking the debate questions in the most recent Dem primary were from certain organizations that already had partisan ties. So like... All the all the trust has already been fomented, and I'm just talking about the left. Then there's the um the people that I would consider nonpartisan black conservatives, the Tariq Nasheed, Francis Cresswellsing, Neely Fuller, Gus T. Renegade crowd. They're full of conspiracy theories, and they're conservative, so they're already not gonna believe anything that you put up on MSNBC or on slate.com or anything that you run through the root or very smart brothers.com yeah i i actually don't know who they could possibly fool anyone with anyone new yeah and you know that's the thing because the people who became the big voices since 2015 you know you see folks like sean king who has a huge social media platform and, you know, it was just some months ago or back over winter, I think, that he was really under attack for um, basically, you know, for being an opportunist and monetizing all and using, you know, all of these crimes against black folks and just kind of riding it for his own, you know, his own uh, opportunities and not really doing much with it. He became, I believe, the the he owns what is it, Black Star or no North Star. Yeah, media he, now but then didn't yeah. do anything with it so people are like where is the money going where is all this black lives matter money going and that's and that's when things get serious you say where is this money going where is you know what is each chapter doing each chapter is different but you know and that would be something that i'd be curious what you think of um william because you know that's the thing so it's 
someone is going to be tagged by the liberal elite media um, that largely runs our mainstream media. And and these people are going to be the spokespeople for Black Lives Matter. And since Black Lives Matter is, there is an organization, there are chapters, and there is a, a national organization to some extent. But, you know, when you've got millions of people, you know, screaming Black Lives Matter and protesting with that and using that hashtag online, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are all part of that organization. It's, it's a rallying cry, per se, you know of sorts. And, you know, it's almost like saying, okay, well, I am black power and I'm the, you know, not me, but I'm saying if somebody stood up and said, okay, I'm black power and I'm the representative of black power, that that's a, that's an ideology and a rallying cry. But when anybody can then be used or selected as the leader, how do you do that? Like, like how many of the people in these protests would consider themselves Black Lives Matter, what does that mean? Are they Black Lives Matter because they said that? It's kind of like Occupy Wall Street. Anybody who showed up to Occupy Wall Street in 2011 would be Occupy. And that failed in a lot of ways. And now we see another kind of online started um, movement with Black Lives Matter, you know, where, you know, like I said, there are chapters that developed, but they're all different, um, highly different from what, I, from what I know between different cities and... So, you know, when somebody that's that's I guess what I'm asking you, William, is when somebody comes in to represent Black Lives Matter, how does that happen? Why do they get to be the leader and how, you know, are all protesters Black Lives Matter? Shit, no, because Black Lives and, and maybe this is me being what folks call pedantic and I'm happy to be that for a thousand more episodes. Uh, Black Lives Matter is just a sentence that many of us happen to agree with so they they try to make it a movement but it's like what has moved like nothing has come of it like there's no new practice that we see happening every week or every month that black lives matter does and gets folks involved in really other than a die-in a sit-in um you know, doing our hair up real nice and taking pictures with brand new T-shirts on and posting them on Instagram. Like, Black Lives Matter, it's basically like Afropunk with a pocket constitution. You know, like, if I if I were to sum it up in a real cheap way there, yeah, Afropunk with a pocket constitution because it's, it's just beautiful media-selected niggas that can say, oh, First Amendment rights or some shit like that. But how can you be the leader of a sentence? And then also, like, who are you leading? Who is your underboss? And and then also, we're supposed to be in a democracy now. Um, who voted for you? <laughs> we didn't choose this leader. Uh, yeah, exactly. it, yeah, it's not going to work. It's not going to work on me. It's definitely not going to work on anyone tuned into the wine cellar. And I think a lot of folks on the broad anti-capitalist left, no matter which word fits you, if your word is anarchist, if your word is communist, whatever you're, if you're in the broad anti-capitalist left, it's it's not going to work on you. Now, maybe their hubris will make them think it will, but I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we see, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all of these corporations and organizations and nonprofits and such. You know, I expect it from the nonprofits I suppose, but everybody is making statements, you know, universities, etc. 
um, to some extent about how they support um, their black students, they support the black community, um, they support black Americans for their rights, and you know, there are all these statements that they're, they're very empty statements. They're not promising anything. Um, you know, and I'm not going to say that nothing has, you know, come out of this. Cause I think, you know, I think the uprising is great. Um, I have no qualms. I only have nothing but support. Um, I'm critical as somebody who knows how the United States operates, but, um, in terms of co-opting things and destroying movements and counter revolutions, entire departments built on that in our government. Um, but you know, I'm all for it. And, um, you know, I wonder though, all these, all these companies that are able to make empty statements. And to an extent, I wonder how much of that is because the messaging around the movement so far doesn't have anything that it's demanding more than saying that black lives matter. And, you know, saying black power is another thing. I mean, you might need to define that. Like what does black power mean? Certain things can be as empty as you want, but, um, but when Facebook comes out and says, okay, black lives matter and makes that the top of their screen when everything they've done, their economics, the way that they treat people, black Facebook users who get banned for, you know, talking about racism or, or trying to report someone for racism. I mean, even simple stuff like that, like nothing they do represents that, but they're able to make a simple statement that affirms the messaging of this movement because that's the, that is the only official messaging in a lot of ways so far. Maybe that will change. It's too, you know, it's too early to tell because I don't think this is just like it was in 2015 anymore, but, um, yeah. Yeah. What does it mean for Facebook to say Black Lives Matter? Yeah, still just a, a just a sentence. Also, with um, like with Black Power, like what what power are they talking about? Are they talking about economic power, educational power? Are you gonna get more? Uh, like, are there gonna be grants and scholarships for Black people to uh to get more Black teachers for Black students? Yeah, what black power? Like that's just something they can say. Just like um to my understanding, I think we're in uh we're in Pride Month. I tend to not know what the hell is going on. Like if I walk up in a t-shirt, if I walk up in a Target store and I buy a t-shirt with a rainbow on it, a gay teenager doesn't become unhomeless. <laughs> like they haven't yeah. been empowered. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, it's symbolic representation. When I think everybody, you know, the reason why this movement is so different is because people are people are screaming about the, the conditions, the overall conditions in this country that that they refuse to take anymore. But I don't know if Black Lives Matter encompasses all of that. Um, is my is my sound OK? I live next to a large park here in Humboldt Park, Chicago, and there is a very loud caravan of cars right now. You know, we're getting close to. Um, Puerto Rican Day Fest, so that's pro- that's what's going on. You know what that 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 works for the program. That's on brand for the program. Let's ca- okay. yeah, I can I can hear it, and that that works for me. Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of Puerto Rican flags, a lot of pride right now. Um, coronavirus or not, Humble Park will it's it's gonna rock all month with this. Um, all right, so where were we? 
No, yeah, about what Black Lives Matter, what it carries. You know, and to be fair, if you look at websites like, you know, the Black Lives Matter official website and, you know, then there's Movement for Black Lives, which is a is is somewhat crossing over and they're a combination of many different organizations that came that uh, black organizations that came together under Black Lives Matter since 2015. You know, they have a list of demands, but like I said, you know, a number of these Black Lives Matter chapters, you know, at least, you know, in Chicago, I know that they're, they're ran like a, like a nonprofit thing with a board. I mean, the, the, like, it, it's kind of like, you know, that's not a mass organization and it crosses over with another organization that is a nonprofit, which is more of what I mean with like Black Youth Project, which is a think tank of the University of Chicago with a, that's funded by white money. There's no way around that. It's a university that's an occupying force in the South Side. It, that is a white, you know, um, top f 10, top five university in the United States that is, that is funding that. So how do we talk about that? What does that mean? You know, I'm not, you know, how does, how does that work? You know, what does that mean in terms of, so when people say, okay, these are our demands, well, who, who decided that? And does that speak for everybody in this movement? Anyway, I've already said that, but um, I think these are the questions that are going to really start coming to the front. And I'm really curious to see if there is a, you know, now this time around, unlike in 2015, if it's going to be, if there's going to be resistance to that, if people are going to, you know, think that, okay, well, we saw a few people become essentially celebrities over this, but we're in the same position five years later. I think that now is the time for fucking journalism. Um, support the shit out of investigative journalists that are not corporate bought and owned. Because I think that the violence against the people is going to ramp up. And all the people together, they're going to be like... It, it, this, this is going to be America's dream for Martin Luther King that little white girls and little black boys can get their heads cracked by the police together. <laughs> and and here you are on our podcast, so there you go. But fucking, yeah, man, I, I think that's where shit's going to go, is it's going to get harder. And not just, like, with police cracking heads, but that shit keeps going. Like, remember, they're still under prison guards. Like, once they get these cats through the jails and up into the prison system, now they're going to be in there with them. And we've covered those stories. You know, we hear people getting out. We've heard rappers talk about prison guards on their albums. Uh, one example, horrific. This is why we have trigger warnings. I think it was down there in Florida where, um, where they scolded him with a hot shower until he burned to death. You know, just, just cooked him. Just cooked them alive in a hot shower. You know, like shit like that is going to go on more. Solitary confinement. Oh, there you go. You're going to see a lot more of that shit. Like the, the crackdown on the people is going to be fucking tough. Yeah, because now you have me thinking because now I'm thinking about um, I'm, my brain has moved over to black misleadership again because I can't stay on topic. Um, and that nonpartisan um, black misleadership that's, you know, the Tariq Nasheed and the Boyce Watkins and those heads, something I've seen with them collectively is they have a huge fundraising reach. And if they were really about some black empowerment and, they, and I've tried to call into these fuckers live shows, they will not 
respond to me and uh but it's like why don't you folks like because these are rich niggas in million dollar homes and all that it's like get together in one town like say out here in elgin illinois get together in one town and take over that city council run your own candidates fund their campaigns get the like they these black misleaders have so many people that follow them they have people that will knock doors for them so let let's see it take over a town take over the school board take over the mayorship and see if you can make that town pop in the way you talk about doing when Tariq Nasheed says black empowerment on his radio show like if you're really that serious cuz these folks have easily over a hundred million in one year in fundraising reach i shit you not they fundraise so fucking much so they can sell t-shirts and dvds for example just to show folks how gross it is because i know some folks tune in that don't know about these cats i think it's north centennial island with that um it's not an uncontacted tribe they have been contacted and that's why they're so resistant to any more contact uh, when a um, that Christian missionary tried to invade them and they and they took them out with the bows and arrows before he even got off the damn canoe, and uh, oh, yeah. yeah, and what did Tariq do? Sold North Sentinel Island T-shirts. Yeah, when you talk about the blackness leadership class, you know, William, I think it extends it. it that's a big part of it, but also largely the liberal elite class in general. Um, should be discussed because, you know, I, I see everybody, again, turning the wagons towards Trump at this time. But what what strikes me, me is that, you know, every single city that had the largest police repression and deaths, there's been multiple people who have died from at the protest, peaceful protesters, just, at, you know, um, at the protests around the country. Um, you know, so the largest police repression and the worst conditions for inner city black folks across this country that have sparked, like Minneapolis, that sparked these rebellions. I mean, these are in liberal, democratically run cities that consider themselves progressive. I mean, if somebody knows of one that's not, bring it up. You know, please let me know. But we're talking Seattle, terrible crackdown. We've got Denver, so Seattle, Denver, and then Chicago, from what I know, were the first last weekend, especially, like last Friday, last Saturday, over a week ago now, when was that, maybe the 31st of May-ish, that weekend, they were the first ones to institute um, curfews, where you have to go in at 9 p.m. or it's going to be even worse for you, worse martial law, less rights because you, you know, surpassed curfew. That was Seattle, Democrat. That was Denver, Democrat. That was Chicago, you know, insanely corrupt Democratic machine. You've got New York, democratically run, um, that then that then followed after Chicago. You've got Atlanta, democratically run. Um, Austin, Texas, where police shot and killed a protester during this, democratically run. I mean, how how you know, to, at a certain extent, you know, I almost say, how dare you make this about Trump when all of the worst local responses in cities have been democratically run and due to democratic um, misleadership and neglect. And then a rise up, a, a increase of police repression and militarism. 
all of that's been coming from Democrats. You know, I, of course, Trump has his National Guard. I'm not going to ignore that. But but my thing is, I, I, you know, I won't sit by and watch, you know, liberals try to take the heat off of them when they've been complicit in this for decades in their cities where this is happening. And you know what? Uh, does this name ring the old bell there? Bob McCullough? No. Who's that? Uh, it, it will, as soon as you hear it. The, uh, the, the prosecutor for the Michael Brown case that, that, threw the, that basically threw it on purpose. Oh, wow. Yeah. Democrat. Re-elected over and over since 1994. There you go. Yeah. Yep. And, um... So... Yeah, what up? So, yeah, you know, we're going to see people try to make this into a pro-Biden thing, even if they don't say it, because that's the thing, you know. Um, a number of people, like the Black Lives Matter folks in the last election around 2016, many organizations didn't come out outright and say, or leaders, and they, you know, they didn't come out and say outright that they were endorsing Clinton. Some did, but a lot of people, what they did was they, they simply kind of, they, they made their messaging anti-Trump, which was by default then supporting Biden, um, or I mean Clinton in that scenario. So I think a lot of that's, you know, kind of going to happen the same because if somebody endorses biden like 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 um new movement leaders new movement leaders that get kind of selected by the power source when they do um again they won't come out directly but you know what was it i'm trying to think of what happened in like 2015 2016 with clinton um yeah there were people who were paid to stand up against that's that's the kind of stuff that happened they were they were they were a number of um some of the black lives matter founders i believe who went to sorry i'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what it is maybe, maybe you can find it you know you're quick with that stuff william finding that stuff online whenever i mention you know half thought out things i'm trying to recall out of uh, history here but um <laughs> they, they they were paid to basically denounce um, Bernie. Remember at some of the rallies? So, so they never showed up to protest Hillary Clinton. They never did. But there was a small select group that, again, you know, I, I'm not going to insult the whole movement at all, but um, but a small, but that's what I mean about a small select group being co-opted who only protested Bernie. And that was interesting to me because it never happened to Hillary. No, with Hillary stuff, stuff like that that tends to tends to happen. It's a it's a backdoor way of of supporting Biden straight up. They had the uh, Hillary had the one person, one little black girl by herself with a sign, and she had to sneak into an event. Like you could tell, the event was basically just in someone's big ass house. Like it wasn't even like they rented a hall or an auditorium. It was in someone's fly ass crib. She had to creep in and sneak in with the sign. And, um, wow. oh, you didn't see that one? No, I missed that one. Yeah. Well, good for She was promptly removed. <laughs> yeah, see so, the, the sirens? That's on brand. Yeah, so I suspect there might be some plays by the Democratic Party to do some stuff like that. I mean, of course, Biden's campaign is going to have people 
you know, he already did the thing where he's kneeling in the church, you know, with, with um, you know, black folks behind him. That was his big photo op this week. Um, after he said to shoot protesters in the leg instead of the heart, that's his, uh, I'm assuming that's his police reform plan, to shoot him in the leg instead of the heart. Um, so, you know, and, you know, so the thing with Biden, that's the ironic thing is uh, people are, are going to turn this into a, you know, Biden's our only choice. Things have gotten so hot, but I don't know. I think those are people, like I said, it's not us. You know, the more people who see the U.S. as illegitimate, as a failed state, will not see this, will not be scared into thinking this is their only option. They will be fueled by this to say, no, this is the time to make, to fully make people realize this state is unsustainable. It is, it is, it can't be reasoned with. And it's not going to change with Biden. And now is the time to not let up the pressure. But, um, but yeah, you know, they're going to try. You know, I, you know, this week I was made aware that um, Biden was actually the one after the Rodney King riots in 1991. Two months later, he was the one who personally sponsored and promoted the, um, the this a bill that was titled Police Officers Bill of Rights. So... That was him in 91 with police brutality. He was supporting police officers um, as a leader, you know, sponsored that. So, um, you know, he got the crime bill that, you know, effectively criminalized black people further across this whole country. After they got civil rights, you know, had to figure out a way to keep criminalizing the black community. So he, you know, he fronted that. He fronted the 1994 crime bill. So, I mean, it, it, there's so much glaring in the face. All he can do is photo ops, and he looks goofy doing them anyway. So, you know. Yeah, and you know, made me think about when he when he talks about the um, shooting in the leg and um, instead of in the heart or in the chest, the the fatal shot, the deliberately fatal shot, as um, mentioned by here go, here comes the tangent by um, by George Carlin's daughter. Um, who was uh, being interviewed by Stephanie Zamorano of the Jimmy Dore show. This is back in, whew, maybe about like 2014, George Carlin's daughter was uh, interviewed. And, they, and she said that she knew cops down there in Southern California. And they said, yeah, we, we do kill shots so that they can't tell their side of the story. You know, and that's archived on a program called Comedy and Everything Else. Now on with Joe Biden and the thing would shoot him in the leg instead. Like that's the disposability and the abusability of the black body, right? Because it's like, um, look at the like draw the direct parallel to Roots with uh, Kunta Kinte, where oh you tried to run away, well we're gonna uh, cut off your genitals or a significant portion of your foot. You know, yeah. it's like, but we have to harm you. With whatever our modern day weapon is, we gotta do it. We have no choice because our whole our culture in general is built on sadism. So we have to do something, you know. So like Joe Biden didn't suggest not shooting them; just shoot them somewhere else. Yeah, and that's my thing with the Democrats. This system and this history and the brutality, 
than the Democrats because with just the Republicans, if we get the Democrats out of the way, we add another, you know, a new party and let them implode, whatever. A, a real movement that's unified against them, you know, us versus Republicans, we would win. Us being confused and given the runaround and, you know, um, trying to find our way through the fog here with these, you know, deceitful Democrats, that's what keeps us from revolution. It's not the fighting, it's not the standing up, it's this, us getting ourselves together and figuring out what the right direction is. And the Democrats impede that. Um, you know, the, they, gosh, you know, when it comes to Biden like that, like shooting them in the leg, if we, if we waste all of our time trying to discern if, the, you know, that's a, it's a great metaphor for reformism. If we spend all of our time and all of our energy as organizers, leftists, you know, on trying to reform something that is so, so incredibly screwed up from the roots, if we spend all of our time and decades doing that, we're never going to get to revolution. If we're trying to, if we, if we metaphorically try to do a police reform bill and push that through Congress or whatever that essentially shoots people in the leg instead of the heart and kills them directly, if that's our goal, we're never going to get anywhere. If we don't get past this and say, no, you know, screw you, Joe Biden, and we're not going to shoot anybody. If we don't, if we can't get to that point in our politics, we're never going to get anywhere. Yeah. You know, and well, yeah, like you said, um, with decades and decades, it's like people don't really think about too much, but it's like, what, from George Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, that's three motherfuckers that have been president and that's since i was 17 and now i'm turning 37 like that's a bunch of goddamn years and i see no change and there have been a lot of movements a lot of politicians have come through and around those um those revolving doors of congress and lobbyists it's like and what and what has happened for the people like I don't want to go out and um, and be remembered on some poster as, well, he said some shit I agree with on a podcast 70 years later. Like, Jesus Christ, can we get something, a Medicare for all, something for the human beings, a, um, hell, reduced hour work week, but mandatory living wage on that, right? Like, do we really need to be there 40, 60 hours a week, even 30 hours a week? Again, I'm a machine operator. I see how fast these machines can make product with very few human hands touching them. There should have been UBI. UBI should have came as soon as there was a the goddamn combustible engine. There should have been a damn UBI, even though there shouldn't have been capitalism in the first damn place. Yeah, well, let me ask you, because that's another um, whole nother topic we could get on to. I don't know how long you're going to do your live here since it's four, but um, I'm yeah. happy to keep going. Um, but, you know, with UBI, you know, I, I'm not I'm not against it, per se, but, you know, I wonder in terms of capitalism, you know, the whole thing with capitalism being that um, if if you... When, when the working class does not have power over the means of production, you know, and I, I won't stick in the Marxist, uh, you know, academic, you know, boring, put you to sleep kind of speak. But if we don't own, if, if we, you know, if, if the workers do not have control of the government, instead the ruling class does, those who run everything and own everything, the landlords, the, 
the owners of all these companies, the CEOs of corporations, all of that. Um, you know, shit, I would say the same now. I would include that in with like nonprofit executives and, you know, top union presidents who don't, you know, are now so divorced from the workers they claim they represented. I mean, all of all of these people who actually have control and access as an elite class to decide what the government is going to do to suit them. If we don't have, if we don't change that, where workers have, you know, what Marx would have called the the dictatorship of the proletariat, meaning the workers have control and defend their control, and they run the government, and um, and that's it. You know, they do anything to stop any class, higher class of people from taking it back over. Um, if we don't do that, so if you get UBI, universal basic income. If we don't have that kind of control, then what happens with that extra income that we get from the government every month, um, which is just, you know, it's going to come out of taxes, our taxes that we pay, because that's what I mean. So the government, because it's ran by the ruling class, are going to be able to, you know, maybe they'll say, okay, we all get $1,000 a month extra, but now we're going to cut taxes even further for companies in order to do that. Now the landlords can raise the rent extra money because we don't have rent control and they'll take they'll snatch that extra thousand dollars that they know if there's an extra expendable income the landlords will raise their rent across the city a thousand dollars a month because they can because they run the elite and the local state and federal government so they will they'll inflate themselves because we still don't have control over and you look at that and how it just steals life right like how many people really should have been like some cool elder in the community helping the children learn how to swim in the local creek but instead they're my co-worker who is um 80 years old i have an 80 year old co-worker in the factory right 80 born and that and i asked him too like this he turned 80 this year born in 19 fuck 40 80 and doesn't just work full-time works overtime does the 12-hour shifts regularly and is on the mandatory um saturday or sunday just like the rest of us and i asked him he intends to work for five more years if he can it's like capitalism stole his life yeah you know but the the best that'll be happen is uh, but what the hell kind of sentence was that the best that'll be happen is the um <laughs> some bootlicker will prop him up or when he dies some local newscaster will treat it like it's something to be proud of and he worked until he was 83 and died on the shift doing what he loved putting boxes on top of boxes with a hand walkie forklift the fuck you know or like th- this is why you know, I really hate one of my coworkers very badly because these are, um, they're not black. They're people of color. And, um, and he just said some bootlicker ass shit in front of the, um, the white folks in upper management. And, uh, the, the 80 year old man walked in cause he needed a pair of safety gloves and grabbed him out of the office and went back to his uh, production line. And the bootlicker person of color loud and proud pokes out his chest in front of all the white folks in upper management says i hope i can work like him when i'm that age like you boot licking mother fuck you i can't stand it they make me tired 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's something to be said for, um, you know, when we've had this discussion, um, you know, as much oppression as immigrants and, you know, immigrants of color go through in this country, there is a large ideology um, sometimes that comes out of this where, you know, it's the whole American dream ideology that white America has been promoting to its own citizens and promoting internationally while we kept other nations poor. You know, we, we see every, you know, people come here assuming it's going to be the American dream and they're going to have a big TV and a huge house and a big car, you know, five cars in a garage because they see American celebrities like that. And America, you know, produces this mirage to give to people. And, you know, there's a strong ideology that comes from some, from some sects of immigration. And, you know, again, it's never, it hasn't always been like this. The Chicanos were radical and nationalist against the United States. That's the, you know, the 1970s, um, you know, Mexican-American movement. Um, you, you know, Zapatistas who were on both sides of the borders. They were huge, you know, in the 90s. I mean, there's huge brown berets, you know, especially radical Puerto Ricans. There's so there's plenty of, you know, there's very multifaceted different ideologies and politics. But there is a strong assimilation politics right now that is about the American dream. If I work hard, my kids are going to be just like the white Americans on TVs and then novellas, you know. And we and that's also, you know, that's part of how racism is also in they're the nations that they emigrated from too that you know promote a lot of these ideologies and america is seen as this rich center that you know you work hard you're going to be able to have something different than you know what you come from and a lot of times there's strong movements that come out and real people who realize sometimes it's the next generation of folks after their parents who realize wow you know we did all this work and we still don't have we still don't have anything we still don't have rights we're still poor Maybe the American dream isn't real. You know, I think there's a strong, you know, history of black radicalism that has real because of the hundreds of years long struggle on this side of the border that there, there's a lot more pessimism and cynicism towards that um, just because of the, the 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 history of black struggle here. But, um, you know, it. And that's the whole thing. You know, people think if they work, then that's going to be, you know, they're going to get rewarded. Like, you know, you pray to God and you're going to go to heaven, right? You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's screwed up. And that's the, you know, I tell people they have to imagine something different. Anybody of any, you know, any working class folks in this country, because we have such little imagination in this country of what we can do differently. Like, People hear terms, and that's why I don't like using academic speak, um, because it's it's designed for a certain class of people. It's got a snobbiness to you know, snobbiness to it. That doesn't mean not to talk about tough issues. That's patronizing to working folks who understand the world in many multifaceted ways more than privileged people do, by far. But um, but we have to. Use, but I, you know, when I when you hear something like dictatorship of the proletariat, that's a leftist academic kind of term that comes straight from Marx, you know, which is important. But you know, what is a dictatorship of the proletariat? If you scream that at people, you know, who probably know three, you know, might know three languages and be way smarter than you, but you're saying dictatorship of the proletariat. That's what you know, and you think that you sound smart saying it. It's like. There's a million other ways we could talk about that that actually gets people to think of a different future. Like, what would it mean? What if you kicked, what if you 
the company you work at, William, what if all the workers, you know, kicked the CEO out, took over the the factories? And, you know, in Argentina, workers did that after the collapse in like 2001, 2002, um, the great economic collapse, failed state again um, in Argentina. Um, the workers just said, God, we don't have a job. We're all poor as shit all of a sudden. Well, we all have this factory and our factory's just sitting there. They just went right in and they said, you know what? We're going to do this ourselves and we're going to run this factory ourselves. We're going to work here and we're going to take all the profits from it and share it together. And we're going to make decisions together. What if you took over your factory and all of the workers, maybe you work four days a week on the fifth day. Everybody gets together in a room and they vote on what they want to do with the profits. Maybe they want to open another factory. Well, all the workers vote together and decide if they want to spend some of the profits on a factory or if they want to split their bonuses equally amongst each other. It could be that simple. That's a dictatorship of the proletariat. That's, that is, you know, small groups of people who run their own workplace like that and make decisions themselves instead of a CEO leeching off them and getting all the money off of their labor. You could decide it together and all the little towns across the United States could have little, you know, little, um, what do you call them? Um, like people's uh, assemblies. People's assemblies. Everybody gets together, decides what they want, and then they send a person to the government to say, this is what we want to do. No more lobbyists. Kick the lobbyists out of, you know, because you kick the CEOs out, you kick the landlords out. I mean, so how do we think, like, that's using imagination to say, how could my, how could I, how could my labor, instead of just being leached from me like this, Instead of going to bed and the only dream that you have is that if I work hard enough, maybe I will look like one of those celebrities someday or my kids will if I can't. I mean, walking, you know, if you walk in and your labor could turn into a whole new way. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying if we, if we don't have the imagination to talk about stuff like this, that is what a dictatorship of the proletariat is. It's not words. It's it's saying that we don't want to live like this, like a robot anymore. How do we do that? Yeah. Do we deserve to do that? You know? Like an, an example from uh, about three decades ago now, uh, straight out of Compton is where this um, example comes from, actually. And uh, you have Easy e Dr. Dre, MC Ren, Ice Cube, DJ Yella, and they know that Easy es a good vocalist. He can rap, and he put up the, the reefer money to buy studio time. Dr. Dre can make a beat, and he's very meticulous. DJ Yella's a good sound engineer and a DJ. MC Ren and Ice Cube, they can both write and they can both rap. And before Jerry Heller showed up, they would just press up the records, sell the records, and then just split the proceeds. And then Jerry Heller showed up and he was like, well, no, Easy should get this, Cube should get that, this guy should get paid this much, and fucked it all up when they did have a dictatorship of the proletariat, to my understanding. Hmm. So they did in their in their company, per se. Yeah, in in their own way. Yeah, because they they just all came out of the same neighborhood, same side of town, and were like, "Yeah, let's just form a rap group." And Easy E has the uh, the money for the studio time, and let's uh, let's put these records out and get them back. It's really how a lot of the rap cats come up, and I think even when they're with a record label. The record label is going to be like, you have to make a single that can play on the radio and whatnot like that. 
But the groups come together and make the songs. They decide to uh, bring their friends in. Now, this is back in the 90s. I have no idea how it works now. Rappers look like boy bands now. I don't know what happened. But uh, back then, they really did run their own shit. And a lot of them started their own labels and broke away from the major labels. And then they just had to get distribution. And so, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, you know, and it's, I mean, it's the way to go. The thing is, you know along with a project like what you're mentioning, you know, there's been many attempts, you know, in the United States and elsewhere in capitalist nations to um, people to kind of do their own thing. Like there's workers co-ops that exist, you know, and that's, you know, that's great. Um, Then there's people who do communes, straight up communes, where they take a little town or they take a chunk of a city. You know, the Paris commune was notorious for that um, around the time of the, you know, the uh, French revolution. Um, you know, in the United States, there's always been little, you know, like, uh, white people have notoriously tried this. And some of them weren't even very ideologically clear. They weren't necessarily communists. Some of them were anarchists. You know, some of them, this is like, you know, the kind of 1970s flower child folk. Some of them were political. But, um, you know, they, they go off and they take a little town somewhere and they make their, you know, their peace, love, and harmony communes. But the thing is, is it... Um, they'll kind of reproduce um, exploitation or it'll be run like a cult or it will, um, you know, it kind of devolves and into, you know, somebody running it and they, they reinvent the wheel of capitalism in their own little microcosm um, because they're not political. And if they get too powerful, they get, the, the United States comes in. So that's the thing of being, of building a real revolutionary movement that has to be national and international. Because, I mean, the U.S. won't be able to do it by itself. They need people from and movements outside the U.S. to be working together. Um, but anyway, I guess what I'm saying is small pockets of folks who do this stuff, um, if they do it right, then the government comes after them. That's what they do. I mean, so I guess what I would say, you know, with the dictatorship of the proletariat, that is ultimately the government and not just the, the few projects of folks who are doing it. But that's when you take over the government to the place where it it's enforcement arm, like it, it's it's military and it's, um, I guess, domestic, domestic police forces exist to protect now the workers and enforce that the workers are in control of the government instead of protecting the ruling enforcement is only is enforcement of the state the you know the the force is is used to ensure that workers are able to to keep control of the government and not have lobbyists and a ruling so no no ruling class can take over again and just bring back capitalism Sorry, y'all. Yeah. And oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, and homie in Texas got the masks. I think I got a message about that. 
Yes, yes, new theory operation um, being run by a comrade in Austin, Texas now. It's going to start some uh, mass distributions and lots of other theory stuff, so. Fresh, fresh. And I think I saw you said uh, more are coming their way? Yeah, yeah, we got some more here in Chicago that we will be sending them for distribution and there's a lot going on in Austin right now with um, the protests so oh that's right yeah you see and this is what again this is what little bit we do with a couple folks kicking over to a PayPal and mostly like I can like folks will send me a message so I know who they are from Facebook or Twitter and there are some folks with class privilege that follow us or some folks that when I say privilege I mean unearned advantage so like they may have come from that privilege or there are some folks that have a, um, you know, they're in a higher tax bracket, but they didn't come from that. And there's folks that currently have those income levels that kick over. So, like, the way we um, collect in and then socialize out, it really is coming from those that have the most access or are the most able. Uh, Phoenix Kaliter has some phrase that she knows where it's like, um, to each their ability and and folks need and whatnot. <laughs> I, yeah, I think you may, maybe you know that quote. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's up, you know. That's um, how we rebuild social relations here in the United States. You know, things have been really broken down and we got this, you know, there's this big charity model. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to dig into the whole nonprofit industrial complex now because that's going to be we're not going to be able to get out of that for a whole hour. But, you know, when so many the charity model is in control of the ruling class people who really don't want to change anything, right? So they'll kind of they'll give their money, you know. The big CEOs will make a foundation so that they can, uh, you know, get tax write-offs and, um, you know, then look good. But those foundations only give to the people who keep their interests um, intact and don't challenge the corporate structure, right? So. You know, when we get folks that are paying attention, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of people listening, I'm sure, that like, you know, they've got extra money, they're doing okay, but they're not okay with what's going on in this country. If we can say, hey, we don't have to go through all those old channels of people who don't really, nonprofits that might not care, and that's not, not, that's not all nonprofits. I won't say, you know, there's small ones, there's some radical ones, but in general, um, you know, if we say, no, let's work directly in a new way, you know, we can pass money back and forth between each other because we got this new media program. We got, you know, Williams got these mics. You know, we got folks talking about real stuff on the ground. We don't have to go through those channels and those leaks anymore to try to do something. Like, we can do it together and empower each other, you know. So that's very important, you know. And the movement, you know, the movement needs money. It doesn't need big money, but it needs a few coins. Yeah. And I think those are good closing words. How about next week, nonprofit industrial complex? You jump on and go the fuck off on them. All right, sounds like a plan. All right, good. I'm 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 interested because I I heard a little bit of it, like um on a recent episode we did. I guess they're all recent right now. But uh, when I said something that was from a New York Times article, and it was some bullshit, and when you responded to it. It was like this little joke that Phoenix and I share where like that Chelsea Springler is like if Cindy McPherson was a real person. It's like, oh, there it is. Right on. All right. So I'm going to get out of here. You have a safe rest of your evening. I got to figure out how to record Swapcast with Phoenix Kaliter 
and um and i gotta record social dissonance and then i gotta be in the factory at 5 a.m 